Hello, everyone. Alex here with a quick programming note. As usual, we recorded this week's episode on Thursday. And as we were working to pull it together on Friday, the Supreme Court issued its landmark ruling overturning Roe versus Wade. We were not able to cover this monumentally important decision in this week's episode, but we will certainly be covering the fallout from the decision uh, in future weeks. In the meantime, I would direct you both to episode 247 uh, of our show from a few weeks ago when we discussed the uh, leaked draft of this ruling and what it would mean for it to become law as it now has. Also, our sister show, The Term, is this week publishing a special Friday episode featuring an interview with constitutional scholar Carolyn Shapiro to break down what happens now that the ruling is on the books. So we thank you for bearing with us. And with that, here is this week's show. Welcome to Pro Se, Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Alex Lawson. Hello, happy to be back. And Haley Kanoff. Hey, Amber. Hey, Alex. Nice to see you guys. We've got a really busy week and a lot of stuff to cover in today's show. Sure do. Um, Before we get to that, I did want to, I would be remiss if I didn't say, I think a couple of like months ago at this point, I did say that I would no longer talk about our former co-host, Bill Donahue. He was canceled from the canon of the show. Which I always thought was very harsh. Going forward. But I did want to say, I'm going to break that rule now. Oh, Just this past weekend, I did attend his wedding uh, in Scranton, Pennsylvania. Oh, congrats. It It was quite a... You know, it's really funny, like for better or worse, like sort of Western culture, like in weddings, it tends to be very bride centric. I think we would all like, that's just kind of the way the tradition has coalesced. This was one of the more sort of like groom forward weddings I've ever known. Like, so are you purporting that Bill Donahue groomzilla to this? A little bit. I (laughs) I need details. It's not that he was like an overbearing person. It's just like his like contingent of people just kind of overwhelmed the whole process. He's got like this goon squad of high school and college friends who are just well, like that. absolute animals. Uh, and I'm just kind of like, oh, yeah, you know, I used to work with Bill. It was cool. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the Eagles well, were mentioned a bunch of times. Of course they were. No mention right. no mention of intellectual property law at all during what any of the speeches. I, w- I didn't make a speech. It probably would have come up had I been asked. But anyway, I do bring it up to sincerely say Congratulations to Bill and Molly. Uh, it was uh, quite an honor to be there, and we miss him dearly. Yeah, pictures looked awesome. Hope he's having a great honeymoon off in Paris. Yeah, um, Paris. Congratulations, Bill. Yeah. Anyway, there's quite a bit of news to get to. Later on in the show, Haley and I had a talk with um, one of our senior legal industry reporters, Shumei Dong, who did a really interesting story for our new legal tech section at Law 360 about law firm hackings, which we've talked about before, but she did a lot of sort of extensive research that said that this has been on the rise in the last couple of years, and specifically among sort of smaller and medium-sized firms who are always, who tend to be a little bit 
caught on their back foot when compared with the uh, with the big guys. So um, stick around for that. Uh, super interesting talk with Shumei. I'm excited to hear that talk you guys have with with her. But we have a ton of news to cover before we get there. It's that time of year again. It's blockbuster SCOTUS ruling season. It sure is. We definitely got one. I would like to say we were recording this on Thursday, so we got a big one this morning we want to talk about. But there's more rulings coming out tomorrow. (laughs) So we may miss those for this week's show. But if there's big stuff we need to tell you about, we will cover it next week. We can only do so much. That's right. I'd also like to point everybody to our sister show, The Term. They are, of course, covering all of this end of Supreme Court term um, big decisions and all the the news you need to know. So definitely check them out as well. So for us, the one we want to talk about today is that just this morning, the justices in a 6-3 ruling struck down a New York gun law that had placed strict limits on carrying guns outside of the home. This move very much expands the scope of the Second Amendment. The speed with which my Twitter feed lit on fire today was impressive. And I imagine it will continue to do so. Definitely. Big case. Yeah. Yeah. I can kind of set us up with the more of like what exactly happened because I do think everybody was talking about it immediately. People were waiting for this one to come down. This is probably the second biggest case after the Dobbs decision, which we maybe already know the outcome to. But this was the other big one that everybody had their eyes. uh, Yeah. Please walk us through it because I... I have a sense that some of the takes that were being spewed within moments of this decision dropping. Maybe not dropping. so nuanced within a few seconds. Yeah. yeah, maybe not. I don't know that we're going to be that much better. It's only been a few hours, but I'll do my best. So this case was um, New York residents Robert Nash and Brandon Koch had challenged a New York state law that restricted carry licenses to people who could show something called proper cause. That had been interpreted as meaning the applicants had to face a severe threat to their lives before they could get a carry permit. The Supreme Court's conservative majority said that that New York law is unconstitutional. Justice Clarence Thomas penned the majority opinion, and he said this, quote, We know of no other constitutional right that an individual may exercise only after demonstrating to government officers some special need. So the majority said that that proper cause requirement violates the 14th Amendment by preventing law-abiding citizens with just ordinary self-defense needs from exercising their right to bear arms. I mean, it's a huge ruling because the right to bear arms is sort of one of the more explicitly sort of stated rights in the Bill of Rights. And so any kind of restriction on it is going to be ripe for judicial rebuke, especially when the court is constructed the way it is now. Do you have a sense of like the scope on this, though? I mean, I know the court has like hand. I mean, people are always looking at gun cases in the court, but this is this seems to be quite, quite considerable. I don't want to uh, overstate this, but you almost can't. This is one of the most significant expansions of gun rights since the Supreme Court first recognized an individual's right to own a firearm, you know, unrelated to like militia service. That was a 2008 rulings in District of Columbia v. Heller. So it's been more than 10 years since that one. So this case, they go even a step further. They say that that individual right applies outside the home. So that's a pretty big deal. That is. That is. And so you just mentioned this, but I'd like to hear more about the the history here um, and the historical implications of this. Thomas really, really dusted off the tomes uh, when he was writing this one. <laughs> Honestly, yeah. we saw a little of this in the leaked Dobbs opinion, if that remains right. um, correct, that they, the justices really have been going to this well of like, what does history tell us about a big societal issue? 
And that happened here, too. So the majority opinion lays out a standard that courts have to use to judge restrictions on gun rights. The government has to demonstrate that the regulation is consistent with America's, quote, historical tradition of firearm regulation. That is much different than the standard that we had been operating from, which that most courts were using. They would consider whether a gun regulation advances an important government interest. So you can see a big disparity there in how this is going to be evaluated. Yeah, I don't want to blow past that either. I mean, they Thomas basically writes a new standard. I mean, he's saying like the historical tradition of firearm regulation versus legitimate government interest. I mean, now he is... I mean, I, there are ways to square both, I suppose, but that's a pretty sharp turn, at least at, yeah. at least on first blush here. It's a definite big shift here. And the historical bit is pretty interesting to dig into yeah. because in the briefing to the court and during oral arguments, the parties argued over the extent to which the historical record supported the constitutionality of this New York law. First off, the New York law in question is about a century old. So there's some history right there, just that law itself. Wow. But also the state of New York and gun control advocates pointed as far back as the 14th century to argue that English common law recognized the government's ability to prohibit dangerous weapons in the public sphere and to restrict those in various ways. So they went back all the way to English common law and said it started here. This has existed. But Thomas just didn't agree. Um, Thomas said this. We find that history ambiguous at best and see little reason to think that the framers would have thought it applicable to the new world. So Thomas just didn't agree with that part of history, selected a different section and interpreted it that way. So that kind of brings us to what everyone was losing their minds over, at least on my Twitter feed. I assume this affects gun regulations far beyond New York. Is that accurate? Yeah. For sure. It very much does. There's a handful of other states, including California, Hawaii, Maryland, Massachusetts, New Jersey, that have restrictive carry regimes similar to what New York had. And those are now all in the chopping block. Justice Kavanaugh, joined by Justice Roberts, did pin a concurrence that went out of its way to say that the ruling does not bar states from imposing licensing requirements on guns. So there's 43 states that have some kind of licensing scheme. Those Mm -hmm. often include stuff like that we're all pretty familiar with hearing about, like background checks, firearms training, mental health checks, um, fingerprinting, that kind of stuff. So Kavanaugh said those schemes are objective and they don't grant an open-ended discretion to the officials that engage in that licensing scheme. So therefore, those can continue even under this new ruling. Okay. On a 6-3 partisan uh, court, which is what we're dealing with these days. The dissents are almost just academic at this point, but they obviously they, they carry certain weight when you consider that cases might be uh, or issues might be revisited down the line. What kind of dissents did we get here? I can imagine given the given the issue it was, and, and given the context, uh, it was pretty uh, heated. Yeah, I mean, I think the context is really what's important in the dissent as well. So it's hard to talk about gun laws without considering the massive scale of gun violence in the United States. Justice Breyer wrote the dissent. He was, of course, as we've said, joined by the other liberals, Kagan and Sotomayor. And he basically expounded on the reality we're living in right now. Breyer pointed to the recent mass shootings in Philadelphia, Buffalo, Uvalde, all of which took place while the justices were deliberating this current case. I want to read a couple quotes from Breyer. Um, Please indulge me. They're a little lengthy, but I think uh, really illustrate what he said overall. 
2020, 45,222 Americans were killed by firearms. Since the start of this year, there have been 277 reported mass shootings, an average of more than one per day. Gun violence has now surpassed motor vehicle crashes as the leading cause of death among children and adolescents. The justice went on to say, the question before us concerns the extent to which the Second Amendment prevents democratically elected officials from enacting laws to address the serious problem of gun violence. And yet the court today purports to answer that question without discussing the nature or severity of that problem. So you can see that Breyer just basically says in the context we're living in today, the majority opinion doesn't even talk about that, doesn't mention the mass shootings or anything that's going on. And the liberals really took umbrage with that. Yeah, I mean, I'm not inside Breyer's head, but I mean, you can almost you can almost sense that he's they knew they were coming out on the losing end here and he just wanted to at least have it be mentioned, you know, yeah. in the record, yeah. in the official court record, like to acknowledge the moment in history. And it's not surprising because so much gets circulated behind the scenes at the Supreme Court that we did yep. have one of those classic situations where we got a separate concurrence right. responding to the dissent. So Alito joined the majority, but he also wrote a concurrence just to say that the relevance of mass shootings and the recent spate of them he said it was not relevant to the case at hand and the decision they made. Hmm. Alito actually used the Buffalo shooting as an example of how New York's gun law being on the books at the time that that happened didn't stop the mass shooter mm -hmm. and went on to write this. Will a person bent on carrying out a mass shooting be stopped if he knows that it's illegal to carry a handgun outside of the home? And how does the dissent account for the fact that one of the mass shootings near the top of this list took place in Buffalo? The New York law at issue in this case obviously did not stop that perpetrator. So to me, it's a really um, it's very interesting when we see a debate going on just in America writ large spill directly into two justices writing back and forth to each other, yeah. essentially. Um, and those two takes really do sum up the vast divide in America on guns right now. So definitely worth a read for anybody who's following this issue. So I want to uh rather drastically shift gears here to <laughs> a pretty bonkers, for lack of better word, story out of South Dakota this week. You've probably seen the headlines. Their attorney general was just removed from office. And that was because he hit and killed a man with his car back in 2020. Um, so almost, almost two years ago in September 2020. And obviously, you know, first and foremost, I want to say this is a really a really, really sad, tragic story. But there's just a lot of really unusual things going on here legally that I want us to get into. Yeah, I mean, it's the top legal officer of a U.S. state who did something highly illegal. I mean, I'm as, as I've said many times, I'm not a lawyer, but you definitely can't go around killing people with your car. But nope. because he's a public official the gears of justice can tend to move a little more slowly here. You said it was in September 2020. What is going on here with the South Dakota AG? I'll, I'll set it up here a little bit. This uh, now former attorney general, his name is Jason Ravensborg. He's a first-term Republican. And the accident happened on Saturday, September 12th, while he was driving down a rural highway in South Dakota at about 10.30 p.m. He was... Uh, coming home from a political event. So he called 911 at that time and said that he had hit something, probably a deer. Now, supposedly, <laughs> you know, he called from the scene, the county sheriff showed up, 
And neither of them reported seeing anything unusual. But the next morning, Ravensborg went back with an aide, and that's when they found the body. Wow. Again, I mean, I don't... Somebody died, so I'm really not trying to like... It's, but it's just like the farcical nature of this is just like hard to ignore. So what do we know? So what we now know happened for sure is that Ravensborg hit 55-year-old Joe Bover, who had been walking with a flashlight alongside the road. Yeah, this story is really... I mean, it's terrible, but... You would think after something like this happens, they discover the body that there may be charges like vehicular manslaughter comes to mind. Did anything like that happen? No, uh, no felonies. So Ravensborg pled no contest to two misdemeanor charges, making an illegal lane change and using a cell phone while driving. The big repercussions really didn't come until the South Dakota House of Representatives voted to impeach him in April. And then earlier this week is when the South Dakota Senate voted to convict and remove him for committing a crime that caused the death of a person, as well as malfeasance in office. The Senate also voted to bar him from ever again holding public office in the state, which is important to note because before this, he was refusing to resign. And he even was saying that he would run for re-election. It's always interesting, and obviously, again, this is like a very serious thing. But it's it, whenever there's a, a a light shown on an area of the country that doesn't always get the level of legal scrutiny. Like it's not like this happened in New York or Washington or L.A. or something. It was like, like I won't pretend to be an expert on like South Dakota politics, but it's interesting that this set of facts could emerge, and the AG like refuses to resign and just and and actually says I'm going to run for re-election before the state legislature effectively forces his hand. But anyway, I want to get back to Amber initially asked like if the vehicular manslaughter seems like a layup here, but that's not what happened. Can we talk about like the distance between the facts and what and what actually got brought in terms of charges? Yeah, there's a lot of disconnect in this case to be frank mostly between what Ravensborg told investigators and what the evidence actually showed. The State Department of Public Safety released three hours of videos of public officials' interrogation of the uh, former attorney general, and they're a lot, you guys. <laughs> yeah, I know you uh, watched a bunch of these, Haley, so that we could do this segment. And give us some highlights. I mean, what was in these interrogation videos? Generally speaking, Ravensborg repeatedly told investigators that he didn't know what he hit, um, that he immediately jumped out of his vehicle to call 911. If you watch these videos, uh, which were posted by South Dakota Public Broadcasting, you'll even see him in the interrogation room uh, reenacting, jumping out of the vehicle and calling 911. He like, jumps out of a chair. Very interesting portion um, he says, quote, I call and I said, I am the attorney general. I'm approximately a mile west of Highmore, I believe. I've hit something in the road. I need some assistance. Ravensborg says repeatedly that at this political event, he had one regular Coca-Cola. That was it. And he also was not on any medication. One Coca-Cola classic. Uh, okay. What do the videos actually show? I mean, you said he's, he's, he's pretty animatedly defending himself and all this, but what more can you tell us? 
Yeah, there are a lot of what I'll say were concerning moments in these videos. A couple highlights for you. They talk a lot about how the victim's glasses were found in his car, inside his car. Uh, The pair was snapped in half. One part of it was in the front passenger seat and the other was in the back seat of the car. And we actually have a clip here that we can listen to. We found a pair of broken glasses in your vehicle, but they weren't sunglasses. They they almost looked like cheaters of some sort. They were like a black framed glass. Part of them was laying on the front passenger floorboard and part of them were laying in the back seat, broken half. Do you know? I don't know how to react uh, (laughs) to hearing this on the record, you guys. It's a lot. Yeah. So then we also have another clip here that kind of gets more into the particulars. Related, I would say. I would say it's related to the glasses issue. How does a pair of glasses wind up in your car, sir? We know that his face came through your windshield. We know that. We already talked about that. That's, I would think, substantially clear that that's what happened. We also have the imprint on the hood where his body, well, at least part of his body, likely was riding. At some point in time, he he rolls off, takes out the mirror, and slides into the ditch. This is evocative stuff. I mean, arguably too much. Again, the person died. Like, Mm -hmm. I mean, I've said this like three or four times now, but like, that's, that's, it's tough to listen to. It is. It's really upsetting. And another really key part here is the investigators call him out on being on his phone until basically right before the crash. They point to data they can see uh, from his phone showing what he was doing leading up to when he called 911. And we have a clip from that part of the interrogation as well. So when we look at that, our concern is everything that we're seeing here is appearing that you were on your phone reading political stuff at the time. Political stuff. I mean, he's an attorney general. It was relevant to his job, at least. I mean, not to make light of... A very, very awful situation. Yeah, it's very awful, but it also sounds like a plotline out of House of Cards or something. I mean, it's like, that's how you'd write it. Like, you were reading political stuff on your phone. It's, yeah, it's it just doesn't feel very real, you know? Yeah. And I think the most chilling part here is where they talk about the flashlight. We have that clip as well, where they essentially call him on, you know, how could you not see this man carrying a flashlight? I got another question for you. Okay. Okay. Did you see the flashlight he was carrying? No. Ever? Uh-huh. When you walked back to town? Uh-huh. No. No flashlight. It was pitch dark out there. Right. And with it being pitch dark, we went out and tested it. Okay. And we picked up the flashlight. Right. Okay. The flashlight was still on when Joe and I got to the scene. Okay. It had not been touched. Uh-huh. We picked it up and the light is still on. Okay. Yeah. So for me, overall, this is just painting a really terrible picture altogether. It's a really horrifying story. It's a really tragic ordeal and a lot to take in. So while this evidence really doesn't make him look great, I do just want to emphasize that where we stand is he's been removed from office, but he has not been criminally charged with anything except distracted driving. So it's where we'll leave things for now. 
Cyber attacks against law firms are on the rise. And while Big Law's white shoe titans have mostly weathered the storm, the same can't be said for smaller firms that often lack the resources necessary to counteract these incursions. Joining us on the show this week is Law360 senior reporter Shumei Dong, whose investigation of extensive public records revealed the spike in law firm breaches and wrote about the unique challenges facing smaller firms. Welcome to Pro Se, Shumei. Hi, Alex. Thanks for having me. So great to have you here. I thought the story was super interesting. I want to first kind of, we've talked on the show before about law firms getting hacked. I mean, it's it's a tale as old as time at this point. But I want to get a sense of the problem. You reviewed public records that revealed that these kinds of like cyber attacks have gotten really hairy over the last year, year and a half. Is that right? Yep, that is true. So I have been tracking the law firm's data breach report since 2019, and that number has continued to increase every year. And uh, last year, we were able to identify nearly 100 reports that were filed by law firms across 17 different states. And that number almost doubled compared to the year prior. Mm -hmm. And among them, um, the report that were filed by the larger law firm has remained steady at about a handful. But the uh, instance that were filed by the mid and smaller law firms have increased significantly. That have more than doubled compared to last year. And um, that one thing that I have been finding consistent throughout the year is that most of the uh, law firms have identified external breach, mm-hmm. meaning that phishing, hacking, and malware attacked as the common source of their data exposure. And sometimes that kind of information that firms were breached have includes uh, names, social security numbers of their clients or employees. And then in some more, even more severe cases, that information have also includes government IDs, financial numbers, medical records, and even employees, W-2, and some other uh, informations. We'd be remiss not to ask, um, you know, with, with almost everything over the past few years, the pandemic has played some sort of role. Has, has COVID had an effect on these breaches too? Certainly. So one of the main reasons that have contributed to the rise of data instant is that many of the lawyers have been working from home <laughs> since the pandemic. Makes so, sense. Yep. Yeah, <laughs> so with, they're, they're outside mm-hmm. the firewall of the yep. corporate sort of structure. It makes sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. So with lawyers working from home and they are maybe working through multiple different devices, that means they're surf attack. That means the attack service. So that's a technical term, meaning that the total points on the network where the hackers can enter and steal the data from the firms have yep. also got a lot more widened during the time. But um, that's also not the only reason why we are seeing the number raising. And uh, several cybersecurity experts have mentioned that, you know, the attacking method that some of the back actors are using has also gotten a lot more sophisticated over the years, meaning that there's a lot more ways the firms can become, firms information can be compromised nowadays. Yeah, and I... I wanted to focus in on the, the on the thing I started. I I mentioned it in the intro. You mentioned it in your answer uh, when we started about smaller, like medium and smaller sized firms are becoming 
more prime targets. You're saying that that's growing at a higher rate than the big law hackings, which are sort of at a smaller level and maybe staying flat, at least from the data you've seen. You wrote about how there's kind of like a two-track situation going on in terms of why that is the case, both that those firms don't have the resources, i.e. the money, to have like defenses in place. And also, they're somewhat a little bit of neophytes in terms of knowing about how... So there's there's both resources and expertise shortfalls in terms of like how to deal with this stuff. What did the experts you talked to say about that, about the, the specific vulnerabilities for smaller and like medium-sized firms? To put it in a more simple term, so many times some of these smaller and Please simplify. <laughs> I, I ramble, yes. <laughs> Sounds good. So many times some of these smaller and mid-sized firms just don't uh, spend that much money uh, in terms of increasing, in, uh, in terms of um, what are some of the things they can do to increase their cybersecurity defense. So even though there are a lot of resources out there, some of the law firms, some other mid-sized firms can do to uh, get themselves um, more prepared. A lot of times, some of the uh, smaller firm leaders just don't know where they can go and what are some of the resources that are available to them. And then second, we are talking about, as you mentioned, this uh, expert um, gap or that the, the lack of expertise that we are seeing at some of the smaller and mid-sized law firms. So. You know, it's not like smaller firms aren't spending money on uh, security defenses at all. They do. But even though when they do have the system in place, many times they just don't have the expert or the technical persons who know what that actually means. So if a attack or if the system tells you that there might be a potential attack that's happening uh, within your network, you know, a lot of time, the smaller mid-sized firm just don't know what that indicates and what are some of the things they can do to react before it becomes a bigger issue. And um, also, the cybersecurity, to have a cybersecurity or forensic expert in-house can be very costly yeah. for some of the smaller and mid-sized firms. And especially during the pandemic, when budget has been something the firm's uh, considering quite a bit about. Many of them just don't have that money to invest in that kind of personnel to help them. Yeah. yeah and you can see how the two issues are related where it's like, it's, mm-hmm. it's a resource gap and an expertise gap, but it's not like <laughs> hiring experts is free or something. Yeah. Like one, one, <laughs> yeah. one hand washes the other. I think they're pretty clearly related as you've demonstrated, which is super interesting. So do you have any sense looking forward, if this is going to keep surging, um, if data breaches are going to keep increasing for these firms, or are there things you know they can do to strengthen their defensive shields? It's hard to tell. Um, no one has a crystal ball about what's going to happen in the future. But based on some of the conversations if I If I had a crystal ball, I wouldn't use it <laughs> to project law firm data hacks. <laughs> I'll just say that. But anyway, mm-hmm. sorry, I interrupted you. Go ahead. <laughs> no worries. So based on some of the conversations I had uh, with the expert uh, in the field, I think it's very likely that we are going to see the attacks uh, targeting law firms continue to increase in the next several years in the near future. And um, 
I also look at the data for the first four months of this year already. And so far, we have identified at least 27 law firms that have filed for data breach uh, data instance. And uh, among those firms, again, we are seeing mostly some of the smaller solo and firms are the victim or have filed uh, those reports. So what can the law firms do in order to mitigate the risk and prevent those attacks, more attacks from happening in the future? Uh, I think, you know, there are definitely a lot more, several things uh, law firms can do. They can, of course, uh, first invest more on uh, implementing the technology, for example, a data encryption system or installing the two-factor authentication system to um, make themselves more secured against the cyber threats. But I think more importantly, as a lot of the cyber experts mentioned, it is about a culture change or mindset change mm-hmm. among the law firms. Um, you know, firms can only do so much um, to prevent the attacks from happening. And as we said before, those kind of attacks are getting more sophisticated every year. So I think what comes down towards the end is what the individual attorneys can do to prevent, uh, to ensure that uh, their firms and clients' information are secure at, at a more personal level to ensure that, you know, they take that extra step every single day to make sure that when they do log on to their firm system, they are uh, taking the necessary precaution to ensure that the information is secure. It's a super interesting story. This is obviously like always something that kind of goes in ebbs and flows. And we're obviously seeing a huge surge right now. I would recommend everybody check out Shumei's story and also the rest of our legal tech section. Um, Shumei, thank you so much for joining Pro Se to uh, talk us through it. No problem. Thank you. Thanks again. We like to end our show with something offbeat. And um, I'm going to say something to you guys that I haven't said in years. Do you remember Lehman Brothers? <laughs> <laughs> I sure do remember Lehman Brothers. Oh, I, yeah. I had a, uh, a friend of my uh, wife's from college went to work for Lehman Brothers in the spring of 2008. Oh. Which was pretty cool if you remember how that turned out. Uh, but <laughs> yes. I'm glad you remember how that turned out. I hope our listeners do as well, because this week I want to talk about a little liquor company who was blocked by the federal circuit from poking fun at Lehman Brothers by using that name on their whiskey. Well, it's certainly rife for parody for reasons that I already (laughs) alluded to. Um, Sort of the most famous failure of the financial crisis of the late 2000s. An interesting but, way to sell uh, to sell liquor, though. That's what I think, too. <laughs> you know, a lot of people were soothing their, you know, woes, probably with <laughs> whiskey and other spirits. What's uh, But what was going on here, Amber? Sure. I'll lay out the legal um, aspects of this and what the Federal Circuit found. And then we'll get into a little color at the end, because that's really why I'm bringing this up. So legal stuff first. We're going to eat our vegetables first. All right. A three-judge panel at the Federal Circuit affirmed a trademark trial and appeal board ruling that rejected this company's name is Tiger Lily Ventures. They had requested to register Lehman Brothers as a trademark for booze. Tiger Lily said that while Barclays Capital had actually bought 
all the Lehman assets after the bank collapsed in 2008, Barclays had essentially abandoned the trademarks by allowing them to expire, disavowing association with that failed bank, and just not using them actively. But the court found that the trademarks had, in fact, not been abandoned. Barclays still uses them for limited purposes, some uh, various financial and business transactions that are still ongoing, (laughs) part of their wind-up of some lingering assets from the old bank. So there's a few ways they're using them. The court said this, We acknowledge that Barclays' use of the mark has not been extensive, and it's possible that Barclays cannot quantify any financial success that may be specifically attributable to its offering of legacy Lehman Brothers market research materials. But under the law, Barclays' continued use of the mark, even if it is limited, is sufficient to avoid finding the mark has been abandoned. So they're using it just enough. I just want to linger briefly on their use of the phrase financial success (laughs) attributable to the legacy. (laughs) Yeah, apparently there were some like market research things that actually were still viable. So that's what that part's about. We succeeded at failing. (laughs) They sure did. In a a certain (laughs) Yes. So there's one other kind of funny argument the whiskey company made. They said they couldn't possibly be taking advantage of consumer recognition of the Lehman Brothers trademark because there is no goodwill for that mark. And instead, what they were trying to do is make fun of it and capitalize on essentially bad will. So nice. TTAB and the Federal Circuit both rejected that. The court said there's really no legal support for like a subtle distinction between goodwill and bad will toward a brand. Damn, but I like one. the idea that we'd even talk about it. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, I like the idea of going before the federal circuit and saying, Your Honor, I'm doing this as an irony post. Okay. <laughs> yes, exactly. Everyone, no one has goodwill toward Lehman Brothers. And so that's why I like it for this, for the name <laughs> of this product. So let's, it, 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 it is. I mean, that seems to be what they were kind of positioning it, right, Amber? Or like- That is what they were doing. And this is where I get to play a little bit. And I hope you guys like this section because I can't resist stuff from this brand's website. Okay. Um, so legal stuff aside, we've covered that. I really want to talk about how sad I'll be if this Tiger Lily Ventures has to shutter the website for this booze because it is a riot. I have to just read some of it to you guys about how they were positioning this in the market. I'm going to quote several hilarious portions. Here's the first one. Our master malter has crafted three whiskeys that tell the tale of the rise and fall of Lehman Brothers, a tale too fantastic for mere words. (laughs) Cleverness, bullishness, excess power and glory in every drop. These are whiskeys for the new masters of the universe. And like Lehman Brothers itself, they go down in style. They go down in style. Yeah, oh, that's wow. the, Come and, on. and you get the Tom Wolf, the bit, the bonfire of the vanities, this master of the universe copy, thing there. I know there's advertising world awards out there in the world, and this should win for all of them. Um, yeah, for for statements like this, I want to know who their copywriter is. Someone that I would also like to meet. Here's another gem: a rich, layered, and shameful story of banking legend. You will taste the snappy spice of its tumultuous turns and the seductive sweet flavors of greed that paved their way. You will note the viscosity reminiscent of the outrageous fortune and a contrite peat of the strangely peaceful quiet that survived it. Here lies an entire legacy, unashamedly bottled and poised for discovery in just one earnest sip. Taste Lehman Brothers, and you taste a little part of history. You know, I gotta say, I mean, I don't like, I don't really, I'll just be honest with you guys. 
I don't really respect the profession of advertising. I think it's cynical and like. <laughs> Whoa. Are you changing your mind now? Because <laughs> and this like is probably great. a net negative on culture because whatever. But I mean, fully a net positive here. This is. I mean, this is kind of what I'm talking about. I mean, I don't even really know. Like, yeah, like we. I mean, you're not you know. tricked, Alex. You don't want to try these art. three fine whiskeys on offer. One no. named Snapfire. One called Ashes of Disaster, and the other one called Evergreen. Yeah. Well, they can't even really connect their own dots. They're like, this is a three-part story of the rise and fall. Well, there's that's a two-part story. But anyway, well, sorry. but there's uh, also the uh, what did they call the silence? The strangely peaceful quiet that survived it. That's the third part. Oh, sure. okay. Yes, Excuse that's right. me. Uh, well, yes. there's also, I would like to point out, there's where we can whiskeys. Where we can balkanize the uh, <laughs> IP of d- disgraced financial institutions. Three whiskeys being offered here, and they offer very colorful tasting notes on each one. I okay. will not read all of them, even though I want to, but I will give you a few choice little moments. Uh, one of them they call dry on the tongue, a trader's mouth as he watches the ticker plummet. <laughs> Then one is the scent of incinerated documents. A serving suggestion for one of the whiskeys is perfect with reckless maneuvers, long gambles, and explosive consequences. Uh, They also refer to the scent of one of these as grass freshly cut from a perfectly manicured Long Island mansion lawn. Floral Mm. notes carried on a breeze to a balcony in the Hamptons. And one of them, they say, tastes best when you're sitting on top of the world. I don't know how ironic I want my whiskey to be. If I'm just this being is if, peak irony. If I so. just if I'm just if I'm laying my cards on the table, I guess that would be my note. Again, I I'm not in this business, so I, don't I know. bet financial bros think this is hilarious. Oh well, I mean, so. well, I c- bet c- people congrats. who lost their homes in 2008 do not, not think this is hilarious. Do not. No, no, no. That puts a little bit of uh, water in my fire of excitement about these whiskeys. But um, <laughs> if anybody else finds this hilarious, uh, the website is great. I recommend that you just Google Lehman Brothers whiskey. You will find it immediately. You can check out all of these tasting notes, which are a real hoot. But before you guys have to cut me off, I will go ahead and stop myself. It's been a great show. Thanks for being with me, Alex. Thank you. And Haley. Thank you. We also want to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our guest, Shimei Dong, and our contributing reporters this week, Jimmy Hoover and Tiffany Hu. Music for our show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. And if you like Pro Se, leave us a written review on your favorite podcast platform so other people can more easily find our show. If you want to read more about anything we've talked about, head on over to our website. That's law360.com slash podcast. Thanks and see you back here next week.